Today's reading is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, beginning at chapter 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, good morning and happy Easter. And don't we need some good news right now? It could be said pretty much every week at the moment, but well, what a week. As many have reflected, this whole experience can feel slightly unreal, like living through a movie. The empty streets, the empty shelves, the shops and restaurants with the lights off, the shutters down and the doors locked, the pavilion pub at the end of the road completely boarded up. And then this week, well, Boris, in that way that we feel that we know celebrities. Boris has been on our televisions for a couple of decades, was our mayor for eight years, our prime minister since last summer, and in recent weeks has been on our televisions every day. And then all of a sudden, the guy who calls the shots, the one who's making decisions to keep us safe is himself in ICU receiving oxygen support. It felt like a moment, didn't it? 
a step change. If he can get it, any of us can. Although, of course, for many, it's already come closer than that. Some of you are self-isolating with symptoms. A number in our congregation are, are fairly sure that they've already had COVID-19 and, praise God, recovered. Friends of my mother-in-law from the church where Grace and I got married last year, first the mother in her 80s and then the son in his 50s, struck down and now with the Lord. We need some good news. But what does Easter actually have to offer us besides a bit of sentimentality, Easter eggs and the Easter bunny? We need something real at a time like this. In his article, Coronavirus in Christ, American pastor John Piper rightly says this is not a season for sentimental views of God. Because the coronavirus is forcing all of us to think, to reflect. What does life look like when everything familiar is taken away from us? What can we depend on when nothing is certain? Those things we thought were unchanging, school, university, exams, our jobs, the gym, commuting, a meal out with friends, have just stopped. And of course, the reality of death. I read these words from C.S. Lewis in our first online service three weeks ago. He wrote them during World War II. What does war, or we might say the coronavirus, do to death? It certainly does not make it more frequent. 100% of us die and the percentage cannot be increased. Yet war does do something to death. It forces us to remember it. War makes death real to us. The coronavirus has made death real to us again. I revisited this book this week in my preparation, A History of Thought by French atheist and human philosopher Luc Fauy. He writes that the central question of all philosophy concerns this proposition, that the human being is mortal. He knows that he will die and that his near ones, those he loves, will also die. And he goes on in the book to examine a number of different worldviews and religions, including Buddhism, Stoicism, his own humanism. And he examines these as working philosophies for life. Towards the end of the book, he writes this. Against all of those others, I find the Christian proposition infinitely more tempting, except for the fact that I do not believe in it. But were it to be true, I would certainly be a taker. I remember my friend, the atheist and historian Francois Furet, being asked on te television what he would wish God to say to him were they ever to meet, to which he gave an immediate answer. Come quickly, your loved ones are waiting for you. Amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. Heaven, eternal life, a hope beyond death. For those who will trust him, Jesus offers all of those things and the possibility of a reunion with those that we have loved and lost. No wonder, Ferry says, I find the Christian proposition infinitely more tempting. But, as he says, is it true? That first Easter day, did Jesus rise from the dead? 
Not has Jesus risen spiritually in our hearts to give us a warm, comfortable feeling, but did the man Jesus Christ, after being executed on Friday, walk again on this earth that first Easter Sunday, just as alive, more alive than he had ever been before? Well, if you've got a Bible handy, you may like to read along and uh, we're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27 and 28, or you may prefer to just listen. The backstory is that Jesus had been tried in the early hours of Friday morning by a kangaroo court. He'd been handed over to the Roman authorities, beaten, mocked, spat on, and then crucified, nailed to a wooden cross and hung up to die. Let's pick up the story at chapter 27, verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, the Roman governor, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. We don't know how long they sat there, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. But at some point they will have walked home, perhaps with tears, perhaps too overwhelmed with shock to speak. And then Saturday, the Sabbath, not allowed to travel and certainly not allowed to visit a place of death and uncleanness. Surely the longest Sabbath of their lives, a day of mourning, of questioning, of confusion and suffering and pain. Why Jesus? Why their master, their friend? Why like this? How could God let something so terrible happen? At last Sunday comes, and let's read on from chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. In Mark's Gospel, we learn that they went bearing spices, which they would, if possible, have used to further anoint Jesus' body. But as they go, they also discuss the impossibility of it. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? There's no way just two of them could do it. Such tombs were designed to frustrate grave robbers, so that once the stone was rolled down the specially cut channel, moving it again was almost impossible. Not to mention that the tomb was guarded by soldiers. All they would be able to do was look at the tomb, sit, grieve, question again what had gone wrong, to be as close as they could to the memory of the one that they had loved, who had loved them. They did not go expecting a miracle. They did not go expecting a wondrous sight. They expected only the silence of the garden and the sound of their own tears. But silence was not what they got. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Just imagine what it would have been like for Mary and Mary. They went to look at the tomb in the quiet of the garden in the early morning, and instead... A violent earthquake, an angel of such power and beauty and strength that battle-hardened Roman soldiers were literally paralysed with fear as this otherworldly being simply rolls back the gravestone 
and then sits on it. It's almost comical, as if he's saying, two tons stone, no big deal. And simply ignoring the guards, he tends to speak to the women. Don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. The soldiers were terrified, but the angel reassures the women. There's no need for you to be afraid. I know why you are here and your intentions are good. But you're looking for the wrong person and you're in the wrong place. You're looking for a crucified man. There's no crucified man here. You're looking for a crucified Jesus, a dead man. No such Jesus exists. The only Jesus now to be found is the risen Jesus. And he's not here. He has risen just as he said. The Bible scholar Leon Morris makes this comment on the angel's words. They should remind them of the predictions that Jesus had made. Jesus hadn't undergone a totally unexpected fate and then experienced an unanticipated deliverance. He had prophesied both his death and his resurrection. And it was important that his followers should come to understand that the wonderful happening that had taken place was in fact no more than Jesus had prophesied in his lifetime. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. But if Jesus had predicted this, if he'd said he was going to rise, why had no one believed him? Why had his followers only come that morning to look at the tomb and not in excited anticipation of his resurrection? And why just a couple of them? Where was Peter? Where was John? Where was the writer of this gospel, Matthew, also one of Jesus' disciples? Their absence is embarrassing. The disciples should have been gathered together waiting to welcome their master back to life. Even the chief priests and the Pharisees remembered that this was going to happen, though they didn't believe it. Chapter 27, verse 63, Sir, they say to Pilate, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. But come that predicted morning, only the women were there. And there just to look at the tomb, if possible, the body, but not to welcome Jesus back. Well, why? I think 2,000 years on, it's easy for us to underestimate the impact that the suddenness of these events must have had on them. For three years, they followed this Jesus, come to know him, come to love him. Thursday evening, they were all together, eating, drinking, celebrating the Passover festival together. And then within 24 hours, Jesus was dead, and they'd seen it all play out every terrible step. Perhaps the shock made them forget, or perhaps the comprehensiveness of the physical trauma that they'd seen Jesus go through just made it seem unbelievable that his prediction could have been true. Jesus was beaten publicly with the Roman scourge, a whip so brutal that sometimes prisoners died just from the blood loss, never making it to the intended place of their execution. These women, Mary and Mary, watched as Jesus was forced to carry his cross, as eventually he staggered under its weight, unable to carry it further, and a visitor to Jerusalem 
was forced to carry it for him. They watched as he was nailed through his wrists and through his feet. They watched as he hung there in humiliating agony for hour upon hour. They heard him cry out in pain and desperation. They watched him take his last breath. They watched him die. And they watched as a Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side to ensure that he was dead. And then when this rich man Joseph came and took down Jesus' body, they followed him to the tomb and sat there as the dead body of their rabbi, their master, their beloved friend, was laid on a stone slab and shut in, never to be seen again. Sure, Jesus had said that he would rise, but he must have been mistaken. He must have underestimated what he would go through, how dead he would be. No one comes back from that. So you see, this report of the resurrection of Jesus wasn't wish fulfillment on the part of the women. They weren't expecting to see him alive again, ever. None of the disciples were. It's why they weren't there. But nevertheless, Jesus had risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, the angel says. His body was here in the place of death, but it is here no longer. And so, verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We'll notice two things. Firstly, Matthew says that they came to him and clasped his feet. Jesus was no vision, no spirit or hallucination. They came to him and grabbed hold, hands of flesh and bone, gripping feet of flesh and bone. And secondly, they worshipped him. They knew now that he was God in human form, worthy of their praise and worship. So is it true? Is this true? Did Jesus rise? Sometimes people say that the gospel writers only ever meant us to understand that Jesus was risen metaphorically in our hearts. As they wrote, they understood themselves to be writing just, just myth, just legend, a comforting story. But is that how this reads? They ran to him and they clasped his feet in their hands. C.S. Lewis, who, as well as being a famous author, was also an academic on the faculty of both Oxford then Cambridge over a period of 40 years, said this. I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life, and I know what they're like. And none of them are like this, he said of the Gospels. Clearly, Matthew believed that Jesus had risen from the dead fully and physically, and he wants us to believe it too. Well, one other thing we can't miss out looking at this passage. As in all the Gospels, the first witnesses are women. So what, you might say? Well, here's why that's significant. In the first century, women were not even eligible 
to testify in a Jewish court of law. The Jewish historian Josephus says that even the witness of multiple women was not acceptable because, quote, of the levity and boldness of their sex. Celsus, the second century critic of Christianity, mocked the idea of Mary Magdalene as an alleged resurrection witness, referring to her as a hysterical female. Now, there are two things we should draw from this. Firstly, Jesus wasn't restricted by the culture of his day. He chose to reveal himself to women first, and in doing so, radically affirmed their full dignity and the value of their witness. But secondly, to our question, is this true? If you're Matthew making this up, if you're trying to invent a religion in the first century, you'd have never had women as your first witnesses. You'd have had the whole gang there, Peter, James, John, Matthew himself, the future leaders of your moment. Of course they'd have said, Jesus, we, we expected you to be coming back. The only reason that Matthew would have written that the women were the first witnesses of the risen Jesus is if he was radically committed to writing only what was true. Now, if you're a sceptic uh, listening in this morning, then firstly, welcome. Scepticism has a great Christian history. You may have heard of Doubting Thomas. And of course, I realise that this one fact alone is not enough to convince you, although I hope it may give you pause for thought in its historical context. It's an incredibly uh, compelling piece of evidence for the authority of the Gospels. But I realise you might have other questions. How do we know that the Bible wasn't changed over the centuries between then and now? Did Jesus really die? Perhaps it was a resuscitation rather than a resurrection. Perhaps the disciples did steal the body. Did anyone else see him alive or just his best friends? And there are so many ways that you could look into this further. And I'd love to encourage you to think about that. I've got a number of books here. Can we trust the Gospels? Is Jesus history? Alternative questions you may have. Can science explain everything? Can biology, can psychology explain everything? Am I just my brain? There's not time to go through all of those now, but I'm going to put a short video on our Facebook page. And if you'd like, you can go there as well as some video resources to look into these things further. But I want to say, in any investigation of the Christian faith, start here. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If this is true, it's all true. Another great book to read would be this one by Tim Keller, The Reason for God. And he says this, if Jesus is the Son of God, then we have to take his teaching seriously. If he's not who he says he is, then why should we care what the Bible says about anything? Start with this question. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If it's not true, then none of Christianity is true. And don't get your knickers in a twist about the words of some guy who died 2,000 years ago. Just ignore Christians and get on with your life. But if it's true, if Jesus rose from the dead just as he said, if he is God in human form, then we really need to listen to what he says. What better thing to look into during lockdown than the claims of Jesus Christ? Amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. Do find out for yourself. Is it true? 
Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is also with us now, spiritually. Before returning to heaven, Jesus said these words to his disciples. Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And what comfort then to know that Jesus is with us, even in these troubled times. But also, if Jesus rose from the dead, then so can we. That is his promise. Jesus says, the one who believes in me will live even though they die. That doesn't instantly make life easy for us. There are many other difficult things going on at the moment. Some will be very worried about their livelihoods, their families, their education. But as one pastor from Wuhan said, Jesus didn't promise us an easy life, but he did promise us an escape from death. Christ's peace is not to remove us from disaster and death, but rather to have peace in the midst of disaster and death because Christ has already overcome those things. And for those who have faith in him, we too can overcome death so that it has nothing to fear for us. Death and suffering will not have the final word because Christ has risen. The glory belongs to him. The victory belongs to him. He is risen. He is worthy of our praise, our worship and our thanks. And so let's sing this next song out together. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son. <laughs>